to judge. I assume many of you guys are familiar with cancel culture. If you aren't, um, cancel culture is a form of ostracism or outcasting in which someone is cut off from their social and sometimes professional circles. Now, cancel culture can happen for serious situations like those being guilty of sexual assault or guilty of racism. And cancel culture calls people out. These instances of cancel culture show accountability and discernment in correcting wrong behavior. Cancel culture can be quite beneficial and helpful in these instances. However, cancel culture has grown far beyond this into something that's quite trendy. And most often we hear canceling somebody over petty things. We think Kanye West and Taylor Swift's feud. We think of these petty ideas in these petty feuds. Oftentimes, people are canceled because of quick judgments and due to actions and beliefs that differ from one another. Frequently, social media, we use social media as our main method of canceling people. In fact, a study by Pew Research Center shows that 58% of Americans believe that calling someone out over social media holds them accountable. Meanwhile, 38% of Americans believe that it just publicly punishes people who don't deserve it. And in reality, cancel culture, as it's commonly used, is just an easy way out of friendships with people who think differently and believe differently than us. It's much easier to judge, silence, and shame someone than to ask questions and hold them accountable. We have a judgment problem as a society. But guess what? So do the disciples that Jesus is talking to in today's passage. Jesus is addressing our natural, critically acclaimed spirits. We are all naturally critical. And many reasons that we desire to judge, Jesus is addressing today. Starting in verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be judged not. When I first read that, it reminds me of the golden rule. Do unto others as you want to be done to you. And I thought, how often do we want a safe place to share without any judgment, but fail to have that same courtesy when we are talking to others? It's so natural for us to be judgmental and jump to negativity, but it's helpful in our study here to remember that this is, this verse, judge not, that you be judged not, is really an inverse of the fifth beatitude, which says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So our instruction is to do not judge, but be merciful. For when we show mercy, we are granted mercy. And the reverse is also true. If we judge, we are met with judgment. Oftentimes, the instruction to not judge can be taken as universal acceptance. It can be misunderstood to be universally accepting. And what I mean by that is universal acceptance is this idea that we respect everyone's differences, which I think we should do, but it goes beyond respecting one another's differences to the fact that accountability, correction, and stating that there's only one absolute truth is viewed as intolerant and unloving. It means that I don't need discernment, I just need to accept what you're saying. 
Now hear me here. Jesus is saying that it is wrong to be judgmental, to be unkind and unwelcoming to people who have different beliefs, worldviews, and lifestyles than us. He's saying that is wrong. However, Jesus is confronting the idea that we need to abandon discernment. Jesus is saying we actually should be weighing things to scripture. We should be wrestling and pondering ideas with Jesus. In verse 6, we're instructed to not give what is holy to the dogs and our pearls to the pigs. How on earth are we supposed to know what any of that means if we lack discernment? It's a crazy thing. So we have to have discernment. And judge not means do be discerning, but do not be hypercritical and condemning. There's a significant difference between critical, constructive criticism and deconstructive criticism. Now, if we get it wrong, sometimes our constructive criticism can be quite destructive. But most often, when we are met with deconstructive criticism, it is shaped and presented to us like it's helpful. Most of the time, it's unsolicited. Um, but oftentimes, it's these destructive criticisms that are very harmful. Instead of spurring us on to improve, we're forced to revel in our failure. We're paralyzed by it. And we are then hardening our hearts to any further instruction. Why would I want to listen? Why would I want to invite that into my life? Deconstructive criticism is often hyper-criticism that focuses on minor things like they're the major things in life. Some examples of this would be, what Bible version are you reading? <laughs> Do you sit in the back of the church? Do you sit in front row? Now, I must admit, hypercriticism often emphasizes the petty things, okay? Minor things, making them major, that's petty. And I am a little familiar with petty. I have received some petty, but I will admit that I often have some petty thoughts. I struggle with wanting to make minor things major. But the thing is, is when we make minor things major, we're giving them space and power in our minds that they don't deserve. When we're having these thoughts and giving them power in our minds, we're actually belittling the people that the thoughts are about. So what does scripture say about the minor and major things? What does scripture say about how to discern between them? Romans 14 verses 1 through 4 says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the other weak, the weak person, eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, for clarity here, this passage is talking about Christians judging fellow Christians. And we see here that it is not our place to be judging. We see that the minor things cannot be the major. Petty people major in the minor. We're not called to judge, but we are called to be discerning. And there are spaces and moments where discernment is necessary and can come with the need to educate and instruct. And such moments revolve around the actual major things in life. 
Things like salvation issues, things that are foundational to our faith are when we need discernment. Now you might be saying, what, what is foundational to our faith? Well, lucky for us, the early church fathers compiled them from scripture into a nice condensed form we like to call the Apostles' Creed. We read it every week in microchurch, and the Apostles' Creed contains one of the most concise summaries of the Christian faith in straightforward scriptural language, and it follows the narrative arc of scripture. It goes from creation to incarnation, crucifixion to resurrection, Pentecost to life everlasting. These are the things that require discernment, and at times, correction in love and mercy. Have discernment, but do not judge. Going on in verse 2, Jesus says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Now this passage in Romans and verse 2 here in Matthew 7 both make it clear that we cannot give judgment nor salvation. God gives us a lot of authority as his children, but forgiveness and judgment are left for him and him alone. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. It's God's job to judge. How easy is it for us to forget that we too are sinners in need of a savior? It's so easy to slip into gossip and judgment of character and pettiness. It's easy to think of ourselves as righteous and forget that it's not our righteousness that separates us from others, but it's Jesus' righteousness. We are only righteous because of our association with Jesus. And Jesus is instructing us that how we dish it out is how it's going to be measured to us. The Gospel of Matthew makes it clear that there is a correlation between our relationship with others and our relationship with the Father. In fact, James 3.1 puts it this way. They provide a word of caution for the authority that we claim and the responsibility we have as teachers. It says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I don't know about you, but that puts me in a little holy fear here. Not fear is in trembling, but fear is in, I must speak not out of selfishness and pride, but out of discernment from God. Because I will be held accountable for the authority that I claim. The authority that you claim to teach and correct and judge someone will be judged with greater strictness. Take a moment to think about this. If God were to judge you how you've been judging others, would you be met with an abundance of mercy or condemnation? I love how author R. Kent Hughes puts it. He says, the tone of your life will be the tone of your judgment. We will all stand before God one day and be judged. And I don't know about you, but I want to stand before God and be met with the forgiveness, love, and compassion that Jesus died for me to have. And guess what? That's what God wants too. He wants to meet us with that. And he's asking us not to show our neighbors condemnation when he's met us with mercy. He's asking us to be a light in this world, an extension of everything that he's done in our lives so others can experience it too. I have this picture I want to show you guys. Um, it is by Scott the Painter. It hangs in my house. I'm a big Scott the Painter fan. I have several of his works. 
And as you can see, there's a bunch of boats surrounding a lighthouse in this picture. This picture has a lot of personal significance to me, but as I was preparing this sermon, sitting in my living room, I saw this, and I was reminded of something. God is asking us to be on boats. He's asking us to bring his children under his safe lighthouse. He wants us to bring people out of tumultuous waters, out of pain and fear and lostness, and bring them to higher ground, safer waters, to his strong foundation. Our job is to row our boats, show mercy, and bring some people to the feet of the Father. From there, it's up to God. We are simply servants and instruments of the word. We are not the word itself. So as servants and instruments of the word, what do we do if we see a speck in someone's eye? How do we help them to the feet of the Father if a speck is blocking their view? We see in verses 3 through 5 that the first thing we have to do is have responsibility for our own sight. Can you imagine having a plank in your eye? You're blind. Can't see anything. Now imagine being blind and trying to go up to somebody and help them get something out of their eye. As my grandfather always says, it's the blind leading the blind. It's not getting anywhere. No, but really, have you ever actually tried to help somebody get something like their contact lens right or get something out of their eye? I'll tell you, I haven't. Um, my, hands are not, my hands are not stable. They're just very shaky. Yeah, my nails, oh goodness. Yeah, that would just be, I'm sorry, I won't even try. Um, should not be a surgeon, shouldn't do those things. Have you ever seen that like Instagram reel where you like hold out your hand and it scans and it tells you like how stable your hand is? Mine looks like I'm actually waving at it because it's just a straight blur. It is not, not the thing for me. But sometimes this is what it's like when we try to help somebody get something out of their eye. Instead of, instead of helping them get something out of their eye, we're actually causing more damage. It's unhelpful. Scripture gives us a good example of what it looks like to actually help somebody get the plank out of their eye. In 2 Samuel 12, we see that Nathan tells King David a story about a rich man who has many flocks and many herds and a poor man who has just one ewe. And in the story, the rich man decides instead of taking one of his flocks, he goes and steals the ewe of the poor man. King David gets so mad about this, he gets infuriated and says that the rich man deserves to die and pay fourfold for this you. And Nathan responds, you are this man. Nathan is pointing out to David the plank in his eye because he had just stolen a spouse of another man instead of going out and getting his own girl. (laughs) But just like David, isn't it those that we're most alike that we get most annoyed with? Hughes puts it this way. He says, the wrath toward the speck in someone else's eye may come from the suppressed guilt over the same massive sin in our own. It kind of reminds me of a telescope. Have you ever picked one of those up and you're supposed to look through the small side and it helps you see things far away with clarity. But have you ever accidentally picked it up on the wrong end and you pick up the big side and you're like, wow, this is a blur. Can't see, can't see even anything up close. We have to stop trying to declare judgment and act like we have clarity on things when we're holding the wrong side of the telescope. 
What if instead of meeting someone with judgment, we can meet them with correction and love, mercy, and empathy? There's that word, empathy. Just like Nathan did. We all need a Nathan in our lives. Someone to help us see, not out of hypercriticism, but out of grace. We need friends with discernment. And we need to be friends who have discernment. We have to have eyes from Jesus. We have to see people at the foot of the cross with us. That is clarity. Notice that once we address our plank, we can then help others with their speck. We have to be cautious of being excessively eager to correct and help. It's easy to think that I am my brother's keeper. To be a good friend, I must hold people accountable. I have to point out the speck in your eye. But subconsciously, when we're trying to help other people, sometimes it's because we don't know how to help our own speck. We're trying to avoid our need, and we're trying to put on a facade like, hey, I'm helping them. Nothing's wrong with me. I'm fine. And Jesus is warning us here that this fake concern for someone else's speck, to show someone their speck, to avoid and feel better about your plank, is hypocrisy. Jesus, now hear me here, Jesus isn't saying that good friends don't have accountability. And he isn't saying that we should all universally accept all behaviors because that's just who they are. What he's saying here is that we have to hold ourselves accountable and judge ourselves first. Because once we judge ourselves first, we're able to repent. We change our ways. God is breaking our heart for what breaks his. And that causes us to be able to weep with our neighbor, to extend grace and mercy to our neighbor just as Jesus has done for us. We have to ask, have, has my focus on your faults blinded me to my own? Jesus isn't a standard that we can apply to one another. It's so human of us to want to do that. The Pharisees did it. To try to apply things that are done in our own lives to others and make it a rule and a standard. But Jesus is faithful to reveal sin and correct us individually. And we have to trust if he's going to do it for me, he's going to do it for them. Now, I'm not saying we don't help each other or have accountability, but we have to have ourselves be held accountable first. Going on in verse 6, this is a fun one. It says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This verse is probably the most confusing in the passage. A lot of analogy happening here. Brings a lot of questions to mind. Who are the dogs? Who are the pigs? What are my pearls? Are they literal pearls? What's holy? I don't know. There are several different interpretations of this passage. Scholars are mixed on their analysis of the analogy Jesus is using. But despite their divide in opinions, we can derive some meaning and instruction from Jesus here. Specifically with the dogs and the pigs, this seems to be referring to those who have not given their hearts and allegiance to Jesus. So before we were talking about ways as Christians, we are to not judge 
one another as fellow Christians. We're to have a certain type of discernment. And this verse is specifically addressing how we interact with those who are not Christ followers and the discernment we need in those relationships. And the instruction here is to be cautious, discerning, and not to be overzealous. Now, with overzealous, I don't mean overexcited. I think I've been told many times when I get passionate about something, I get very excited. What I'm saying here with overzealous is aggressive or without discernment. That can look like being overzealous to condemn one another, to use the transformation that Jesus has done in your life, your holy heart change, as it were, as an instruction manual to judge someone else. It can also be overzealous to convert people, to give your pearl the good news of the gospel to non-believers who are not only unready, but unwilling to hear the gospel. Jesus is calling for some discernment in knowing if somebody is ready to hear the gospel. Or if we need to be patient and lovingly walk with them before we have that discussion. Now, don't get me wrong. We should desire for our friends and others to know Christ. But Jesus is calling us to be discerning with that. Because not everyone is going to kindly reject the gospel. Some people are going to violently reject the gospel. And we have to check our own intentions when we're sharing the gospel. There's a huge difference between eagerly sharing because God has placed somebody on your heart and sharing because you want the recognition of, I checked the box, I'm a good Christian. We should be passionate about sharing the gospel and obey when the Spirit leads us to share. But we're human. We're not going to get it right 100% of the time. And when we do end up sharing and obeying, it's not guaranteed that there's going to be an immediate change. But what it does mean is that God is shaping our hearts after his own and that we're not treating people like projects for our own glory. Quick word on that one. People are not projects. Say it again. People are not projects. We do not befriend people so we can convert them. We don't hang out with people, tell them about Jesus, and when they say no, say, okay, bye. I'm just going to, no, we don't do that. We are called to love. And throughout this passage, Jesus is showing us that a slower path of self-criticism and personal sensitivity is going to grip others more deeply than aggressive, overzealous techniques. The radical love of Jesus naturally condemns sin. So our job is just to approach others with unconditional fellowship and love of Jesus. We're to walk life with them. Love them where they are and use discernment on how and when to share the gospel. And we pray that that journey ends up leading people to Christ and them accepting Jesus as king of their life. We pray that. But if that day never comes, we are still called to love. We are still called to be the same type of great friend to them as we are to our fellow believers. Worship team, if I could have you come back up. Our job is to walk in obedience and love and to trust Jesus with others' hearts. 
there's something that happens in our soul when we give into judgment. We give away our pearls and give the dog what is sacred. Jesus is condemning a hypercritical spirit, one that's selfish, overzealous, performative, and without discernment. I can only notice shortcomings in others to the extent that it leads me to forgiveness and love, just as Jesus has done to me. In the words of Henry Nouwen, he says, only wounded healers have a right to heal. We must remember the wounds that Jesus has so kindly healed in us. Because it's that same mercy, healing, and love that we are to extend to others. So where do we go from here? How do we practice not judging? Well, just like our passage says, let's start with the plank in our own eye. Let's start with ourselves. I challenge you to find accountability. Find a fellow believer that you trust, that you respect, someone who's gonna combat your petty thoughts with Christ-centered ones, someone that's going to actively, you're gonna actively give permission to call you out in love. Someone that's a safe place for you to share things. I personally believe that accountability is best done with a verbal permission and intentional asks. This looks like going up to somebody and saying, hey, I need accountability in my life and I'm giving you permission to lovingly correct me when I'm not following Jesus. Sometimes this means sharing something specific. Abriana and I have been uh, holding each other accountable with our uh, Lent struggle. It's been a bit, we're abstaining from TV and we are not perfect, but we are able to check in on one another. We're able to laugh at the struggle and encourage each other to keep trying. That's what accountability is. I do want to give two words of caution here when it comes to accountability. First is, I don't think some people should have authority in our lives. Scholar Dale Bruner puts it this way. He says, some have harmless specks in their eyes, but others have harmful clubs in their hands. Be wise about who you give permission and authority in your life. My second point of caution is if you ask for accountability, be prepared to be held accountable. We have to be prepared to learn and be corrected. That's the whole point. And our job is to make sure that we are receiving that correction with grace. You can't clap back if people are going to hold you accountable that you asked to hold accountable. They are not going to hold you accountable for much longer if you keep clapping back. If you want communication that's open and honest, you have to receive accountability gracefully. Accountability is a good and encouraged thing by Jesus but it's most fruitful when you've expressed that permission to another clearly and intentionally. Because they know that you've asked for it and they know that they have the privilege to speak up. I would say, generally speaking, somebody who has genuine feedback for you is going to be hesitant to just come out and say, well, that was really bad of you. That wasn't Jesus-like. They're gonna need some permission. 
And once they feel this permission, they're going to be willing to speak up and hold you accountable. Not out of superiority, but out of the freedom of an invitation from you. So for some of us, our next steps mean we need to prayerfully think through who should I ask for accountability from? Spend time in prayer about that. Others, you may have kind of a form of this happening. You just need to make that clear communication. Say, hey, I know we kind of do this, but you have that permission in my life. And other people, you may know exactly who you want to ask it from. You just need to be bold and ask them. Let's hold ourselves accountable today so that we can be made more like Jesus every day. weekly podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.